0: Secular writers simply cannot agree whether the state of marriage in America today is better or worse than it has been in the past. But they do all agree on one thing. They all agree that it has changed dramatically. Here are some of the ways in which it has changed. First of all, marriage rates are declining. Fewer Americans are getting married. These days, if you are an American, you are less likely to be married. And if you're an American, you are more likely to live alone than in the past. There are less wedding bells. The marriage rate has plummeted. Today, about 50% of Americans will marry. Just in 1960, that rate was 72%. Marriages are still taking place, but they're taking place later in life. It's taking couples longer to get married. Studies show that most couples wait on average just under three years from the time they start dating to get married, and the average engagement is 14 months. Both men and women are marrying later in life. The median age of marriage for the first marriage was its youngest in recorded history in 1956. Just over 22 for men and 20 for women. In 2019, those figures were significantly older. Over 30 for men, over 28 for women. This is a statistic that I found hard to believe, but interesting. Half, 50% of today's 25 to 34-year-olds have never been married. Half of today's 25 to 34-year-olds. In 1960, that was 12 percent. Huge change. Part of this is because today, marriage is considered just one possible lifestyle, among many others. Rates of cohabitation are on the rise. Data shows that in adults age 25 to 34, the rate of cohabitation has doubled since 1990. Nearly half of women, 48%, choose cohabitation as their first union. That's alarming. Same-sex marriages are on the rise, though they still account for less than half a percent of total marriages. But you would think they're a lot more than that by the noise they make. Marriage once, not that long ago, was viewed as the true beginning of a lifelong relationship. Now it's largely viewed as an optional capstone to a long-term relationship. The changes that have been documented demonstrate how far our culture has drifted from God's design. While this deviation is clear and obvious, The truth is, there is no generation that has had a view of marriage that has ever been high enough. The gap between God's design and the common view is now and has always been gargantuan. If we desire our marriages to be blessed by God, we must embrace His design. That design is spelled out not in culture, but in God's word. And as we Prepare to turn to that word. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us shed our cultural blinders. Catch a renewed glimpse of the glory of that design. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to you once again this morning, we declare our desire and our willingness to let your word be our guide. We recognize that culture gives us flawed and, in many ways, fatal views of almost everything, including marriage. Help us to return to your design and embrace it to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The place to begin is at the beginning. So we begin by going back to the headwaters, and if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to pick it up at verse 18 and read through verse 24, Genesis 2, beginning with verse 18. This verse begins with an incredibly startling statement. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. This is creation accounts. We have heard over and over and over, it is good and it is very good. And then God said, verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. As we return to the headwaters, we see first that marriage is God's creation. This is not something that culture or mankind came up with. Marriage is God's creation. This is revealed by the things that this text informs us that God did. So what did he do? In verses 18 through 20, we see that God revealed Adam's need. If you remember that creation account, and we mentioned it just a moment ago in Genesis 1, you remember that at multiple points in this process, God surveyed what he had done and pronounced it good. At the conclusion of this chapter, we find this summary statement, chapter 1. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. The text that we're considering and just read is an expansion of the description of the final day of creation, focusing in particularly upon the creation of humankind. This is why the statement in verse 18 is so unexpected. Suddenly, we hear it is not good. Is our sovereign Lord saying that he made a mistake? Of course not. He's not saying he made a mistake. He knew all along that he was going to reveal to Adam a need that could only be met by God's creation of marriage. To do this required delaying the completion of male and female. He created them as we see described in Genesis 1.27. That was delayed momentarily so that God could do something. Can you imagine Adam's thoughts as God paraded one species after another before him? And each species included a pair? At some point... Adam had to begin wondering why he was the only one who was not part of a pair. Our text says it this way, for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. This was the need that was revealed to Adam. He needed someone that was fit for him. His recognition of that need was what God had in mind in this unusual process. Adam didn't have to wait long before God did what he intended to do all along, because in verses 21 through 23, we see what God did next. God made provision to meet the need that he had just revealed. God the creator became God the surgeon, causing a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Adam may have gone to sleep perplexed as to why there was no one suitable for him, but his consternation will have vanished as he awoke and saw for the very first time God's provision to meet that need. Adam's response indicates that God's object lesson in having him name the animals had done what it was intended to do. Adam instantly declares, "'This at last!' is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam recognized that she was God's provision, perfectly suited to meet his deepest needs for human companionship and for assistance in fulfilling God's assignment to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis one twenty eight. Indeed, Adam could not complete his God-given assignment without her. But God was not done yet. In verse 24, we see that God revealed his design for marriage. This design is not complicated. It's not hard to understand, though it's not easy to accomplish in our sin-stained world. The design is one man and one woman Devoted to each other above all others, that includes family, for life. Holding fast in a union that God ordains and upholds. This involves leaving, and to use the King James word, cleaving to one another as long as God grants life. That's the plan. That's the design. To underscore that God revealed his design for marriage, we want to step back and observe more carefully and exactly what he did in the text we're considering. First, we notice that it's God's activity that culminates in this first marriage. It's God who says that man's solitude is not good. It's God who set out to complete one of the central designs of creation. God said, I will make a helper for him. It's God who parades the animals before Adam so that Adam might see that there's no creature that that qualifies. It's God that performs the first surgery and from that surgical extraction creates the woman. And in all this activity, God terminates it all with a marriage. Did you ever think of this? It was God who gave away the first bride. God personally took the privilege of being the first father to give away the bride He made her, then he brought her. He gave her to the man in that new kind of relationship called marriage, unlike any other relationship on earth. And then it was God who spoke the design of marriage into existence. We know that Moses was inspired by God to write down in Genesis the precise words that God knew we needed to have. Jesus quoted this text in Matthew 19 verses 4 and 5 where Jesus states unequivocally that it was God who spoke the words recorded in Genesis 24. That definition of his design. This is the design we must embrace. One man, one woman, united by God for life. But there's one more thing. That God did. God also performed the one flesh union. Becoming one flesh, which is at the heart of what marriage is, is a union that God Himself performs. We think that when a couple speaks their vows and they consummate their vows, that they, the couple, are the primary actors, but they are not. God is. It is God that joins a husband and wife into a one-flesh union. The world doesn't know this. And this is one of the reasons the world so casually treats cohabitation and marriage. It's no big deal. They don't know what God is doing. Embracing God's design for marriage requires recognition that it is God who is the primary actor. One commentator said it this way. Most foundationally, marriage is the doing of God and ultimately marriage is the display of God. This leads us to the realization that marriage is for God's glory. We want it to be for all kinds of other things, but marriage is for God's glory. One of the reasons marriage is treated so casually is the cultural idea that is so appealing to our flesh that marriage is about our fulfillment and about our desires. Now, let me be clear. Following God's design is the best and surest path to deep satisfaction in the marriage relationship. But the bottom line is that this is not mainly about us. The Apostle Paul Paul explained in Ephesians 5, and I'm going to give you just a moment to page there. In Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 25, he explained what marriage is really about. Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 25. Husbands are given the first instruction love your wives. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Paul concludes, this mystery, something now being revealed, this mystery is profound And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the Church. The most important phrase in that entire section is the last phrase. It refers to Christ and the Church. Herein lies the great mystery of marriage. Marriage displays the covenantal relationship of Christ and the Church. That's its purpose. Marriage displays the covenantal relationship of Christ and the church. The words of Genesis point to a marriage as a sacred covenant that stands against any storm. In Genesis, it's implicit. Here in Ephesians, it's explicit. It is Christ who paid the dowry of his own blood for his bride. He called this new relationship the new covenant. That is an unbreakable marriage. Paul revealed that our marriages, or that marriage is not only patterned after this new covenant, its ultimate purpose is to put that covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. So when we embrace God's design, when we embrace that design, one man, one woman united for life, In God's union. When we do this, we do it to the glory of God. So if you are tempted like I am, and I know that I am tempted, I am tempted to think that marriage is about my desires and that it's about meeting my needs. If you're tempted like I am to think in that way, our thinking is way, way too small. And we have not grasped the mystery. This is one of the reasons why Jesus reaffirmed God's design for marriage when questioned about divorce. Quickly, if you can, turn back to Matthew 19. And find verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. We referred to verse 4 and five earlier because it is where Jesus tells us that God said those words in Genesis 24. Here we see this. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, this is Jesus, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, God said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, I want you to notice, Moses never commanded Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There were in that day, just like in our day, many, many whose lives had been impacted by divorce. It was incredibly easy in Jewish circles to divorce. All the man had to say was, I divorce you. And it was done. The Pharisees were not trying to learn from Jesus. They hoped to trap him in his own words so that the wicked king, who had recently imprisoned and finally executed John the Baptist for standing strong against divorce, would do the same thing to Jesus. They knew. That Jesus would affirm God's design of one man and one woman united by God for life. That's why Jesus answered the way he did. When we factor in the truth that Jesus knew the mystery that Paul later revealed, that marriage was patterned after the covenant between him and the church, we recognize another truth, and that is that divorce misrepresents the covenantal relationship of Christ and the church. Where marriage represents it, divorce misrepresents it. Our Savior will never, never break the covenant which he purchased with his blood. As one commentator noted, when the impossible day comes that Christ breaks his vow, I'm with you always to the end of the age, then on that day... On that day that Christ breaks his vow, a human being may break his marriage covenant. You see, though, it may not be the intent. When the right is asserted to end the marriage covenant, it implies that Jesus might exercise that same right with the church. This is one of the reasons, not all of the reasons, but this is one of the reasons that God is so adamantly opposed to divorce it perpetuates the lie that Christ might leave his bride that detracts from God's glory by contradicting his design. Nevertheless, divorce does take place. How are we then to respond? Let me suggest that first of all we need to admit that we are all sinners in need of grace. And that we're all called to extend God's grace to one another. In some ways, the church has acted as though divorce is the unpardonable sin. And believe me, divorce is definitely something God hates. But we've acted as though it's an unpardonable sin, and sometimes the church has deeply wounded those who are already beaten and bruised. Scripture identifies only one unpardonable sin, and it's not divorce. We need to come alongside the bleeding with loving care. We need to come alongside while divorced people grieve and when necessary repent and stay with them through painful transitions, folding them into our lives. We must help them find a way to enjoy the forgiveness available to them in Christ and the strength for new obedience that Christ obtained for them when he died and rose again to do less is to deny the grace available in Christ. Oh, there's so much more to say. But we must hurry on. Now you may be thinking, how does God's design for marriage apply to those who are single, including including those who have been divorced, whether by their choice or not? Jesus actually addressed this issue in the exact same passage we looked at a few moments ago. Listen to his disciples' incredulous response and our Savior's response to them. If you're not there, flip back quickly to Matthew 19, and we're going to pick it up where we left off at verse 10. Matthew 19, beginning with verse 10. Remember what Jesus had told them about divorce. let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. From these our Savior's words and other confirmations in scriptures, we learn that marriage is not mandatory for all. As important and as wonderful as God's design is, marriage is not mandatory for all. Jesus pointed to something here that is so incredible and so hard to believe that not all are able to receive it. This incredible gift is described in Isaiah. And I want you to listen to this. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 4. For thus says the Lord, this is God speaking, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That's a gift. The Apostle Paul also wrote about this gift. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 and 8, Paul declares, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say, this is good for them to remain single as I am. Our Savior, Isaiah, and Paul, were all pointing to the same truth. And that truth is that some, not all, some are granted the gift of singleness. Now my guess is that most if not all of us in this room are having a similar reaction to the truth I just expressed that I experienced in the years before God brought Nancy into my life. If you had asked me then if there was a gift of singleness my immediate response would have been well, if there is it's certainly not a gift I want to receive. Interestingly Both Nancy and I, before we ever met, both of us had struggled intensely with singleness. And almost simultaneously, not quite, but almost simultaneously, had surrendered our wills in this matter to God's will. It was only a few weeks after we'd both made this identical commitment that God brought us into each other's lives. Evidently, this was not a gift he wished to lavish upon Nancy and I. When addressing this topic, most teachers will focus upon the advantages singles have over married people when it comes to involvement in ministry. They remind them that they don't have the distractions of a spouse and or children and often have greater freedom in their utilization of their time and resources. This may have been in the back of Paul's and Isaiah's and Jesus' mind. But they were all pointing to something else. They were pointing to the fact that some are actually given the gift of being at peace with their singleness. Not only is marriage not mandatory for all, there are those who are given a unique gift and are able to serve with joy as singles. That this is truly a gift is reinforced by the truth that those receiving this gift are granted special blessings. Isaiah specifically pointed out this truth. Isaiah told us, God told us through Isaiah, that there are blessings even better than marriage. Even better than marriage and better than children that are available to singles. We must remember that Isaiah spoke into a culture in which childbearing was perceived as proof positive of God's blessing. If you didn't have a child, you were married and didn't have a child, you were in trouble. Childbearing was their proof positive of God's blessing. Being a eunuch, which means you're totally unable ever to have a child, Being a eunuch was proof positive of God's displeasure. In fact, eunuchs weren't even allowed in the tabernacle or the temple. This is the culture that Isaiah recorded God's words to. This makes God's words so astounding. To the permanent single, that eunuch, to the permanent single who remained faithful and holding fast to him was promised a heritage and name better than sons and daughters. In fact, this gift was described as eternal. It would be everlasting and never to be taken away. This promise is stunning. We ought to immediately ask, how can this be? What Jesus and Isaiah and Paul all knew was that marriage is temporary. The relationships with Christ and those we lead to him are eternal. We have no more time to develop this further today. But if you're single, please know that you have opportunities to get involved in furthering the kingdom that are not available to those who are married. And you have access to blessings that married people do not receive. God's promise of blessings better than marriage and children to singles who serve him is true. He said it. It's true. To a certain degree, I believe that same promise is available to those who are married and wish to bear children but cannot. When Nancy and I began pastoral ministry a number of years ago, infertility was an unmentionable trial that a seemingly few had to bear. Today, this painful trial seems to touch more and more and more lives. The pain that this generates is often unintentionally exasperated by church family members. My daughter and her husband have been dealing with this struggle for years. Several years ago, she came close to losing her life when fertility treatments resulted in an ectopic gestation, that's a tubal pregnancy, that blew up resulting in life-threatening bleeding. If the surgeon had not gone in, with, within an hour she would have been gone. Shortly after that, I asked her if she was willing to share with me some parts of her struggle to use in another message on this subject. Among other things, I asked her what she found least helpful in her journey. Her response was as follows. Comments such as, So, why don't you have kids yet? Or, uh, just relax. It'll happen naturally. Or, have you considered adoption? Or just constant questions about our situation. It's painful. It's agonizing. So, how does God's design relate to married couples who cannot bear children. Listen to the words of the Lord. I hope they're going to be up on the screen here in a moment. It's Mark 10, verses 29 and 30, where we find these words. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now, In this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and catch this, and children, children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Here Jesus reminds us that those who cannot bear children can still help children become followers of him. So, the final truth about God's design we need to embrace this morning is that marriage's design exceeds childbearing. Marriage's design exceeds childbearing. One commentator explains Here, Jesus shifts the absolute from having children biologically to having hundreds of children through the family of Christ and through spiritual influence. It might include adoption. It might include foster care. It might include making your home a place for backyard Bible clubs. It might include your nursery job or your care for your nieces and nephews or the Sunday school class that you teach. You see, just as marriage is not absolute for every believer, bearing children is not absolute for every marriage. What is absolute is, for every marriage, is helping children become followers of Jesus one way or another, directly or indirectly. God's grace is available to those struggling with infertility to receive his comfort in that trial and to receive his invitation to invest in the lives of many children. Those who accept this grace receive blessings greater than they ever thought possible. I've hit you with a blizzard of truths about God's design this morning. I ask you to bear with me for just a few moments longer as we attempt to apply these truths. We begin by reminding ourselves that God's design for marriage is truly Glorious. It is incredible. Only those who have surrendered their lives to Him and live to serve Him are able to truly embrace it. So what does that mean for each one of us today? Let me try to help. If you are single, by your choice or not, trust God's promise of blessing greater than marriage or children. Seek to serve him. Let him lead. If you do this, this will lead you to fall deeper in love with him and it will help you find satisfaction you did not believe possible. Trust his promise. If you are married... Remember that as much as we want it to be, marriage is not about us. It is not about what we desire. God has something much greater in mind. Resolve to love one another as Christ loves the church so that his covenantal love for his church is displayed in your marriage. This will lead you to fall deeper and deeper in love with the Lord and a side benefit, and with each other. If you're divorced and remarried, covenant with each other to follow God's design for marriage now, and to love each other as Christ loves the church. God wants your present marriage to honor him, and he will help your marriage display Christ's covenantal love for his church. This will lead you to fall deeper and deeper in love with the Lord and with each other. If you are married, you've desired to have children, to bear children, but have not received that blessing, covenant with each other right now to love each other as Christ loves the church and to love the children he does bring into your lives. To love them in ways that lead them to follow him let him ease the pain let him ease the disappointment let him surprise you with blessings you did not think possible this will lead you to fall deeper and deeper in love with the lord with each other and the children that he does bring into your lives dearly beloved We can only do these things if we have surrendered our lives to him. Trusting him alone for salvation and the strength we need to buck the flow of culture and embrace his design. If you've not put all of your trust in him, I plead with you. Do it now. Do it today. If you have placed your trust in him lovingly, care for each other in his family, to his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious design. We confess that our culture has deviated so far from that design that it hardly bears any resemblance at all. We also confess confess that our culture's ideas permeate our thoughts subtly and cause us to embrace things that we ought not embrace. We want to embrace your design. We want our marriages to express the covenantal relationship between your son and his body, the church. We want our marriages to glorify you. And we want all of our lives to be glorifying to you as we serve you in the grace you pour into each of our lives. Help us to glorify you, and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to We're going to close with uh, number 186, Lord be glorified. And I believe it's um, verse 2 only. So if you'd stand with us as we close. Sorry, it is verse 1. In my life, Lord, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. In our home, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. to thank all of you for joining us here this morning for our time of worship and time in God's Word. I want to invite you to return this evening as we spend some time worshiping and allowing God's Word to touch our hearts again. There is a special time afterwards that we call snack time. And we're going to really enjoy that. But we need some help with setting up for that. So we would like for a number of you younger men to help set up the family center right after we leave here. So if you could help with that, that would be greatly appreciated. We want to conclude our time together with the end of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. Where he said this wonderful benediction...